Welcome to the Mama Sisterhood. I'm Heather Evans. When my twins were born at 24 weeks gestation, I began to think about the uniqueness of each of our motherhood journeys. I also began to understand the importance of education and support from other moms, no matter how different our lives may be. Each episode will highlight one mother's journey and the lessons she has learned on this crazy path we call life. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to the Mama Sisterhood. Welcome back to the Mama Sisterhood today. I am so excited to have Erica Mendence here today. Welcome, Erica. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. And Erica, so before we get into your story, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you live, what you do, your family, anything you'd like to share? Sure. My name's Erica Mendens. I am a Kansas City native, born and raised here. Um, I went to college in Washington, D.C., and then I moved to Dallas, Texas, met my husband there. We moved to North Carolina and eventually moved back to Kansas City about six years ago. I am a former educator, so I um, was a Montessori teacher for quite a while up until we'll get into it and um, as part of my NICU journey. Um, but now I actually work at our children's hospital here in Kansas City. So I made a little career pivot. Uh, in my spare time, I really like to read. I like live theater. I have a small craft business where I crochet and macrame. Um, I also am a trauma-informed yoga instructor. Wow, this is all, this is blowing my mind. So I knew some of this, but I did not know a lot of this. And so this is so cool that you do so many different things. Yeah, you'll be able to hear how it ties into my story because yeah. there's definitely, there's been some, some growth and some change throughout um, the last five years. Awesome. That is so cool. So why don't we go ahead and get into that? So I know that your story begins with your, as you progress into motherhood, with your first child, your daughter. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you progressed into motherhood? I know your story began during your pregnancy with Birdie. So why don't you kind of take us back there? Sure. So let's see. Six years ago, my husband and I left North Carolina and we moved back to Kansas City. He's an army brat, so he doesn't have a home that he really calls home um, and was totally fine with moving back to my place of residency. So we moved back to Kansas City and a year into moving back, we decided that we were ready to have our first child. Super excited, as you can imagine. Um, we, I got pregnant in June his parents were coming from North Carolina in August, which was perfect timing around that 12 week mark to let everyone know. And so we were able to tell his parents and my parents together. Uh, and we have it on video. And I recently saw it and was like, yeah, it was just such a special time. Uh, sort of the before times, as you could imagine. Um, but it it's really lovely to see just how excited everyone has was and has been for us um, along our journey but we found out um well we told everyone at the 12 week mark and then I went back to work I was teaching so school started let everyone know it work at that 12 week mark and at that point we were being seen at a hospital and I I won't say which hospital it was but we didn't love our experience there it felt very much like a conveyor belt oh, so yeah. we decided to move to another hospital mm -hmm. and we moved over to this other hospital very first appointment with the OB over there was amazing this was at 14 weeks so just okay. two weeks after we let everyone know so we have this appointment. We're like, wow, this is this is so much better than the other place we were. We're so happy to be here. We felt like it was like the luxury experience of, um, you know, preparing for a baby. And at the end of the appointment, they went to do the Doppler and they couldn't find my daughter. Well, I didn't know it was a girl at the time, but they couldn't find baby's heartbeat. They said they didn't want us to worry that they would just send us over to do a quick ultrasound. Probably wasn't a big deal. This happens sometimes. So I went over to do an ultrasound and they pretty quickly found our heartbeat. But then something was off. I could tell the person 
doing the scan, they said congratulations, but something, you just get a feeling that something's off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At this point in uh, understanding maternal fetal health, I, I didn't have an understanding of it um, nearly as in-depth as I did now. And so at that point, I either thought you, I mean, if something was wrong, it was going to be a miscarriage. And mm-hmm. if not, then everything would be fine. I had no idea of all the ins and outs of what could actually happen. So when she found the heartbeat, I was like, well, that's a good sign. Had no idea what could be wrong, but had a feeling that something was off. So we get up, I get up from the table and I walk out the door. And I remember thinking like, something's not right. Are they just going to let me leave? What? So we're walking out and someone comes, they run out and they say, Hey, can you come back here? The doctor wants to speak to you. Hmm. They pull us back into a room. And I remember sitting in this room and it had been a beautiful sunny day. And while we were sitting back there, this was in September, it got extremely dark and it started pouring rain outside. Hmm. And I remember thinking like, maybe I'm a little bit superstitious, but I felt like it was like a bad yeah. omen. Yeah, um, for sure. So um, the doctor finally came in and she said, we noticed that your, your baby has an emphalocele, which means that all of his organs are not inside of his abdomen. Mm-hmm. It's very likely this baby will not survive this pregnancy. We oh. don't know what's going to happen. Um, we're going to have to send you over to a specialist. Oh my goodness. And as you can imagine, complete shock. Have, yeah. At this point, I have abs- never heard that word before in my life. Don't know what this means. Um, so I almost feel like from that point until <laughs> it was quite a while, I'm not sure when it ended, but I was just um, in a daze. I'm the, sure. Yeah. The day starts then and it lasts for huh, maybe <laughs> a year or two. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So um, we go to the specialist and the specialist had a little bit more of a positive view, knowing more about emphalocyles. Um, But they also said, we don't know what's going to happen. Okay. So we did lots of testing throughout the pregnancy and it was really just a wait and see. Every week as baby grew, we saw how baby was progressing. And that would tell us if baby was going to survive this pregnancy. Um, Every test that came back was positive, um, positive in a good way. And so we used that to feel like, okay, everything could be fine. We'll see what happens. Um, I joined a Facebook group for emphalocele parents very early on um, when we found out. And to this day, that group has been my saving grace Mm -hmm. because although I had never heard that word, there are a lot of children born with emphalocyles and there are people all around the country and the world dealing with similar circumstances. And so being able to see children born with emphalocyles throughout the years at one years old, at five years old, um, at 16 at 25 really helped me throughout my pregnancy. Uh, I brought up that we switched hospitals and found out because at, that was just a sort of a random occurrence that made it so we found out at 14 weeks. Mm-hmm. Normally, you wouldn't have had an ultrasound at that point, and we would have found out at the 20-week mark. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just happened to have this information pretty early on in the pregnancy. As I said, we live in Kansas City, so we ended up switching from our previous hospital to Children's Mercy, the Children's Hospital here, and doing all of the care for the rest of my pregnancy up until my daughter's birth. We originally didn't want to find out the sex of the baby, but when we found out that baby had an emphalocele, we decided that we wanted to know everything, Um, Mm -hmm. so we found out that it was going to be a little girl. We switched over to the Fetal Health Center at Children's Mercy, which is a remarkable place. If at this point, if mom was low risk and baby was high risk, then I would be able to deliver at Children's Mercy and um, she would just go right down the hall to the NICU. 
we were given the option of continuing at our hospital and then making that switch at the end of my pregnancy or getting to know everyone at the fetal health center during my pregnancy and just starting our care over there. So we decided to go over and start um, getting to know the hospital and um, everyone in the fetal health center and eventually the NICU. It's kind of funny to think back to that time and how little I knew about this hospital because mm-hmm. I, I, really hospital life in general. No one in my family had been sick, no surgeries, didn't know anything about hospital life, let alone this children's hospital and children's hospital life. Um, but now, man, I could <laughs> tell you some things. <laughs> I, I know maybe too much. Um, but luckily we were, I continued to be low risk. And so I was able to deliver at Children's Mercy. Um, My daughter was born on Valentine's Day in 2019. So when she was born at Children's Mercy with the this emphalocele, so her organs were on the outside, what was the plan to do a surgery right away? Was the plan to let her grow until she got bigger and then do the surgery? Or was the plan, did the doctors just say, we'll just see how she presents when she's born? Or did they give you any type of guidance in terms of how that was going to go? Well, with emphalocele, they're always different depending okay. on the child because it depends on how you present depends on what is in the emphalocele. Okay. What happens is the organs get trapped in a sac that's made out of what the umbilical cord is made out of. Uh-huh. So right okay. where the belly button would be, it just, there develops a sac. Uh-huh. And um, Birdie, my daughter Birdie, had a partial liver, partial bowel, and partial stomach in the sac. Okay. Some kids could have their whole liver in the sack or um, mostly bowel. Uh, so depending on how your organs are arranged Got could it. depend on what happens. Sure, but sure. also okay. two kids could have the exact same organs protruding into the sack and then it present totally differently. Okay. okay. So it is very much a, we just have to wait and see. All right. I did notice in the Facebook group that children with emphalocele tend to Emphalocils tend to have either feeding issues or breathing issues. Okay. And I don't, I don't know that that's a fact. That was just something in my brain that I sure. noticed that, you know, either we're going to have some more issues with stomach and bowel, or it's going to be more lung related. Okay. Um, and so at this time at the hospital, it's changed since because mm-hmm. there's, I heard there's a new surgeon who has a different technique for dealing with emphalocels that came on since we left in 2019. But at that time, they were doing something called paint and weight, where the skin, so there's the sac is there, and you paint it with betadine until it becomes like skin basically over time it kind of scabs over and the scabs fall off and it becomes like skin and then from there you figure out what you're going to do with it next interesting yeah they do compressions um where you wrap gauze around it in a certain way and encouraging Mm -hmm. the organs to settle back inside the abdomen this also depends some emphalocils are very small some are large Uh, my daughter's was pretty large okay now when I look back at those photos I I can't even believe how large it was yeah um she didn't wear a onesie ever she wore dresses for the first year so that her belly would have space because of this emphalocele. Yeah, yeah, we painted with the betadine, the skin grew over it, and um, we did a compression bandage as well. Okay, okay. And then how was she doing in terms of when she was born? And I know you said um, breathing issues and things like that. So how did she do when she was born with her breathing? Sure. When she was born in the fetal health center, how it works is you, um, so I had a C-section. They didn't want to risk the sac rupturing. So they felt it was best for me to have a C-section. 
there is the OR room for mom and right mm-hmm. next to it is where they take baby immediately after. And that's where there's tons of doctors and everyone's in there to do an assessment and figure out what baby needs. Um, and I remember I was laying on the table, they pull my daughter out and the sound that she made, I knew immediately we were gonna have lung issues. Mm-hmm. I just, just that mama instinct, I, I immediately knew that that was going to be our issue. Never heard a baby cry when it had come out. It's my first child, but I knew that the sound that she made, it wasn't, it wasn't what you would want. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband had to make that choice that many and NICU dads have to make where it's, you know, do I stay with you? Do I go over and be with the baby? And um, I sent him over to go be with our daughter. Um, and he told me he remembers in there that they were going to intubate her, but one of the docs or the fellows said, let's give her a chance. So they gave her a bit of a chance, but it looked like she just wasn't going to be able to do it, to breathe on her own. So they went ahead and they intubated her and they took her to the NICU. I think it's so amazing that you have the option of having having her there at that hospital to where you, you know, you had your operating room and they, and actually my cousin's wife, who I want to have be a guest on this show as well. Her daughter has spina bifida and she had the same situation. She was low risk. So she had the baby right there and they had that adjoining room to where they could whisk her daughter away and, and immediately start working with her. So I think that's awesome that you had that chance. So, okay. So you have Birdie, she has the emphalocele, they take her, they intubate her, your husband goes with her. And we had the same thing as well. My husband was like, what do I do? I'm like, go with the kids, go with the kids. So they're, you know, they're finishing up your C-section. So then how did you kind of transition into NICU life? How is she doing? What was the plan? Well, our plan shifted a couple of times. So in the beginning, she was intubated for the first two to three days okay again it's funny to think back to that time and and think about the lack of knowledge I had because I didn't even know what being intubated meant Mm -hmm. and of course you're in a fog and you're learning a lot um but and they gave her surfactant for her lungs and yeah I was just in a daze and I'm like well I don't really know what's going on um I went to go see her and you're recovering from a C-section. I know when I had mine, cause they give you so much medication and things like that. So you're just kind of, I mean, it's, it's a total whirlwind. Yes. Yeah. I remember going over to the NICU and holding her and there's a picture in particular that I remember taking and I look at it and I'm just like, wow, I had no idea what was going on at this yeah. point. I was just totally in a daze. Um, her first so she was intubated for three days and they extubated her but she wasn't doing a great job of lowering her respiratory support so they tried CPAP and they tried and like a flexi trunk is what it's called Hmm. NAVA and it just that first month and a half was so incredibly stressful because every day it was like, okay, this is what we need her to do to progress. And will it happen today? And it just wasn't happening. Yeah. And um, I had noticed in the emphalocele group that if you have breathing issues, it's possible you might end up getting a trach. Mm-hmm. And so that was in the back of my mind. If she does not step down on this respiratory support, it's possible we could end up getting a trach. And I remember thinking about how I was going to tell my husband that because he wasn't in the Facebook group with me seeing all this information and putting all these puzzle pieces together. But I knew that I needed to tell him that that was a possibility. Yeah. And that was pretty nerve wracking because I just... I I have this bad habit of try, 
taking care of other people. <laughs> now, it's been it's been interesting along the journey to think about, um, especially in therapy, the moments where I was worried about like my parents or about mm-hmm. my husband and how I was going to present things to them and help them along this journey. Um, but that's kind of how my brain works. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um, about a month and a half into this journey with her respiratory support, uh, the neonatologists switch quite often, mm-hmm. and we switched back to a neo who had us in the very beginning. And I just remember her walking up to us, walking up to the pod and saying, why is this baby still on the vent? And the way that she said that told me that this was, we were, I just knew what was coming next. Um, and so they called a care conference, which is a meeting with parents, um, and they let us know that they thought she would be a candidate for a trach. Uh, That was the only moment I remember crying in front of medical staff. I just don't, my husband and I have talked about this a lot because he's like, well, why do you, you seem like you're fine and then you get home and you, it all pours out. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I like to have it all together. Um, but at some point, some points on your journey, you just can't have it all together because it's just so devastating and so difficult that it just, you know, just kind of is what it is. (laughs) So one thing that I liked was that um, because of social media, Instagram and Facebook, there's so many resources for trach parents. And I had seen so many kids running around with trachs and kids at different ages without the ventilator who just were typical kids who happen to have a trach. And I, I knew that this was the best decision for her. We did not want her to be intubated long-term where she wouldn't be able to do her physical therapy or occupational therapy um, to start tasting things. It seemed like instead of waiting to see what would happen and just keeping her laying on her back intubated for a long period of time that, you know, we were like, let's just go ahead and do this. So when she was two months old, she got her trach. Okay. I can see how that would, I mean, even though you knew it was coming, of course, that was still so hard. But I, I love that you had that support and that you saw online and at both the Facebook group and then mentioning social media. I mean, you know, you hear a lot of bad things about social media, but I've definitely heard through this podcast, there have been so many moms that things like Facebook groups and social media have given so much hope. And I know I saw that too, because, um, you know, with our situation, so I love that you were kind of thinking, okay, this is, this is scary, but we want to do, we want her to live, like how you said, you want her to be able to do her physical therapy and taste things. And that's really awesome. So, okay. So two months old, Birdie gets her trach. And then how does she do after that? Wonderfully. She does so well. She started doing physical therapy. We were able to do uh, tummy time Aww. music therapy That's we were awesome. that family that tapped into every single resource in the Absolutely. hospital for sure for sure <laughs> yes so another piece of her story is that when we were doing all of our scans um when before she was born we found out that she had a vsd which is a type of hole in your heart and Sometimes VSDs close after babies are born. Sometimes they do not. We were hoping that it would close on its own, but it, it did not. And so she had to have open heart surgery to close that. They wanted her to get bigger. Mm -hmm. So it was determined that she would do that around four or five months old. At two months, she got her trach and we started our path to home where we started learning how to care for a child with a trach, um, figuring out what our life at home would look like. And we worked on that journey up until she got, she had her heart surgery. And then after the heart surgery, we just um, finished up our journey so that we can take our baby girl home. Wow. 
That's amazing. So how long was Birdie in the NICU then? Birdie was in the NICU for six and a half months. Okay. Okay. Wow. All right. So she has her heart surgery and comes home. What was that like coming home after that long in the NICU? Coming home was one of, if not the hardest part of our journey. I feel as if being in the NICU and being surrounded by people, the nurses that um, became very close with our family, the parents that were also in the NICU with their children, it really protected me from a lot of postpartum anxiety and depression, which I'm noticing, um, just in hindsight, is often associated with isolation Mm -hmm. and just there was always someone around to talk to and things to to do and it kept my mind busy and then I got home and I was just alone yeah so that was incredibly difficult also Bertie was born in February I had three months off for maternity leave and then I had three months off for summer vacation and then I went back to work so she came home in September and school had just started uh, when you have a trach child and they, when the child comes home with a trach from Children's Mercy, in 2019, they had to have 24-7 nursing for the first two weeks. And then you have pretty consistent in-home nursing. Um, but just for me to have been there every day, all day, and then we chose primary nurses at the hospital that we really loved and we trusted. And then all of a sudden, we're just kind of having random people in our house um, taking care of our child. Mm-hmm. It was so really you don't difficult. always, you don't always have the same nurse that comes to your house. You just kind of get whoever's available. Is that how that works? We got the same one initially. At, well, it was, we had, it's so <laughs> all over the place. So okay. they try and have the same people for the first two weeks, but also some people get held up in the hospital because they can't find nursing. I've so sometimes that. it gets piece together um we had one nurse who the company paid more so that she can come from Topeka to Kansas City to work with us so she was like staying in a hotel while she was here it wasn't a long-term situation it did get us home from the hospital but it it was kind of like just random people coming in and out of your house um also the very first week we were home we had an emergency situation and um, basically, so you have a trach and a trach goes directly to your lungs like, and it's an airway. If your ventilator collects water and water goes down the trach, which I call it getting a, getting a drink, um, then it could really do some damage. And so this had happened a couple times in the hospital, horrible, so scary, but you, the hospital trains you for what to do when you go home and something like that happens. Mm -hmm. And I would never wish that situation on anyone, what we've had to do and um, to basically save Bertie's life. But I am so thankful that we were taught what we were taught at Children's Mercy because during the first week home that happened um and the nurse started screaming and I my husband had just left for work and I ran in the room and I had to get oxygen and start bagging my daughter and the nurse had no idea what to do oh my gosh running around screaming in the background um I had I (laughs) over prepared before um coming home I shouldn't say overprepared. I prepared well, very well. I was say, thank goodness you did. Yes. So I had this huge whiteboard in our kitchen with all of our medications and yeah. important numbers. And I wrote our address at the top. And I'm like, if you need our address, it's there. And That's I showed so it to the nurse. Smart. Yeah, in case of emergency. Um, but then at this point, when I was bagging my daughter, she calls 911 and she forgets that that's there. And so she's screaming like, what's your address? What's your address? And I... Having a bagger, once I give her oxygen, she um, returns to her typical skin color um, and all of that. But that 
did not help with my faith in in home nursing. And that happened the very first week we were home. It also didn't help with um, just how I've dealt with for a really long time, just hypervigilance around my yeah. daughter's care. Um, and so, yes. That is crazy story about that situation. I am so glad you were, like you said, well-prepared and you almost have to be hypervigilant. I feel like at that point, mm-hmm. but I'm glad she was okay. That's terrifying. Yeah. So, okay. So you're adapting to life at home with Birdie, with her trach. She's recovering from heart surgery. Take us from there. Okay. So I went back to work, really struggled with being at work, wanting to be home, trying to trust what's going on, um, just being a different person this school year than I was before and trying to continue working with typical families when I have been exposed to such different experiences. Um, So just a very difficult year. And then in March, I remember we were at carpool sending our kids off for spring break and I was standing with a group of teachers and someone says, you know, I heard that we're not going to come back immediately after spring break. And we're like, that's impossible. That What do you mean we're not going to come back? Uh, spoiler alert, as I'm sure you all know, <laughs> didn't come back for the A rest of the year. That <laughs> yes, <Yep. laughs> yes. Um, and for our family, being told, go home and don't leave was a blessing in disguise. It was absolutely what we needed at that point. Yeah. My husband works in emergency medicine and because Bertie is a trait kiddo and was more susceptible to illness and we didn't know what COVID was going to look like in those early days, he ended up uh, taking like leave taking a leave of absence from work. And so he was home with us for three months and I was home with my daughter as well. That's so wonderful. yeah, I just man, really needed that. (laughs) It was a much needed break. So things started to look a lot better. Um, She left using her ventilator 24-7. And how that works is it using the ventilators like training wheels. And as you get stronger, you need them less and less, and then you're able to breathe on your own. So she started weaning from her ventilator and did a great job. So for five minutes a day and then 10 minutes a couple times a day, we slowly worked up until she um, didn't have to use her ventilator during the day. In the, the, so COVID was in March, the following fall, one day I looked at her and I realized that she looked jaundiced. And I knew that something wasn't right. When she was in the NICU, at one point her liver numbers shot up and this had happened where she sort of looked yellow Mm -hmm. and then it went away Hmm. and when we talked with the liver team they said they said they weren't concerned because it went away and her numbers went down so they went up and they went down we have no idea why that happened everyone was just happy that they went down so we go home we look at her and she looks yellow so I call the team and we go in and we talk and they can't figure out why that's happening they think maybe she has a kink and a bile duct Um, they give us a medication that's supposed to help but nothing seemed to be helping and I went into our emphalocele group on Facebook and searched liver emphalocele a couple of keywords to see if I could find someone else's situation that sounded similar to ours. And I stumble upon a family who, it sounds like their child had the exact same thing happen to us, that was happening with us, with the jaundice and the elevated liver numbers and it going up and down. And I read through this mom's, all of her posts and the child had passed. Mm-hmm. So I remember 
wanting to ask the mom questions. Now in these medical groups, if you don't want to be in them anymore, you leave the group, but she was still in the group. So I figured maybe she would be open to answering some questions that I had. And I messaged her, um, of course, very delicately um, and asked her if she was open to chatting. And she ends up messaging me back paragraphs. Her husband is now a doctor. And she said, if I could go back, this is what we would have done and gave me all these ideas because something was, our team kept telling us everything like that we just need to wait. But mm -hmm. I knew that if there was bile backing up, then she was developing cirrhosis and that she would likely have liver failure. When I brought that up, they said, well, no, if that's going to happen, it wouldn't happen for years and years. We really don't think that's a concern. But then when I, something just told me it was a concern and then finding this, they also said they hadn't seen another situation that was like ours. And so when I found one that was like ours, I reached out to the team and I said, hey, I found another situation. This person, they, their child was seen at many different hospitals around the country. They are willing to give us the contact information for every, you know, access to their records. This mom was totally open. And um, I was told, no, you just wait. It's not basically not listened to. It's not that big of a deal. Um, so we decided to get a second opinion out of state. We wanted to go to Cincinnati, but our insurance told us that we should go to Omaha. Omaha is closer and they do the same thing. So we decided to go up to Omaha, went up to UNMC to get a second opinion to look at my daughter's liver um, and immediately the doctor knew that she had a cholidocal cyst. I remember him looking at her papers, her chart and saying, oh, this is a classic case of a cholidocal cyst. And I was in shock because I had been told for so long, we don't know why this is happening. And the fact that one person could look at the exact same information and know what it was, was it has really stuck with me. Something I think about now in terms of medical care is uh, I always say, go where they know. Yeah. There are some places, Omaha UNMC is a pediatric liver transplant. Um, they specialize in that. They've seen a lot of livers. And so they were able to yeah. pick this up pretty quickly. I remember thinking like, how can they be sure? Um, turns out it was a cholidocal cyst. So she had had a cyst since she was born in her bile duct that was making um, bile back up to her liver. We then decided to have Omaha remove that cyst. They, their hope was that if they remove the cyst, then her liver would recover and because livers can bounce back. Um, mm -hmm. And so we had to struggle with when do we do this surgery? Is it something we can wait years for? Is it something we need to do now? It was a very strange place to be in as parents because since we got the second opinion, we, we were in charge. It was something that we had to make a decision about. And I remember feeling like I didn't have enough information. I'm like, well, I know I need someone to tell me, do we do this tomorrow or do we do this in two years? Uh, but we just, we had to make that decision ourselves. And we decided to do the surgery in June. So we got our second opinion in January. And so we said, you know what, let's wait until June. That January, my daughter had completely winged off her ventilator. And so when we went up to have the surgery in June, she had been off of her ventilator day and night for six months. And the company had come and taken the ventilator out of the two out of the house and um, everything was going great. We go up to Omaha, we have the surgery to remove the cholidocal cyst on a Thursday. And that after the surgery was done, the surgeon sat down with us and he said, this was a cyst, we removed it. I wanna let you all know that her liver did not look healthy. It was already mm -hmm. very badly damaged. We're hoping that removing the cyst will help her liver, um, but surgery went well. 
that was on the Thursday. Overnight between Thursday and Friday, she just completely tanks. And they don't know what's going on. At first, they thought that it was, I think it's called containment syndrome. Um, and so they, Friday morning, they're like, we need to take her back down to the OR, open her back up. Um, and because they also, at this point, did an emphalocele closure where they pulled everything together, um, the muscle. And um, they also gave her a G-tube because we went home from the NICU with an NG tube. Uh, so I just remember on Thursday, we're like, oh, this, everything went great. Phallocell closure, G2, you know, the sister is removed. And then what follows was easily the absolute worst week of my entire life. Way worse than the NICU. When she was in the NICU, we always were working towards going home. I could never have imagined what happened after that surgery. So she went back to the OR on Friday and then she went into liver failure and her kidney started failing. They had to basically put her in a coma, hook her up to a machine that would do the work of her kidneys for her. Um, and on Saturday, the doctor sat down with us and said, we, we need to put her on the transplant list. Oh my gosh. In 48 hours, you went from having a cyst removed to being on the transplant list. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And um, on the, they said she was really sick. And so they were going to shoot her to the top of the list. And, and how old is Bernie at this point? Two. Two. Okay. Yeah. And as you could imagine, we just, we had already been through so much. Yeah. And overcome so much. And this was never a thing, right? They just thought they were going to go in and remove the cyst and it was going to heal. And so this was kind of out of nowhere. It was completely out of nowhere. On Sunday, I went and I told the doctor that I did some research. And um, since we're the same blood type, I wanted to be her be her donor okay um and so on monday i did a workup um i at this hospital that i don't know at all i'm you know walking around doing all kinds of scans and then uh, multiple psychology workups and everything and just kind of i mean in a complete daze like if this is what i have to do this is what i have to do um, and at the end of that day of doing all my prep work, we get a call and they say, we found a liver. This is on Monday. And on Wednesday, she had her transplant. Oh my gosh. So all in less than a week. All in less than a week. Um, and we ended up spending seven weeks in Omaha recovering she went to the OR eight times within that week for different reasons where they needed to clean out her belly or in the, the first couple of days, they didn't know if it was an issue with the liver or if um, everything was just in too tight because of what had gone on with her emphalocele closure on top of the um, cholidocal cyst. Um, but due to that, her when she was younger and she needed her trach and ventilator, it was because of her lungs. But because of what had happened with going down to the OR eight times, now her diaphragm was having issues. And so she needed to go back on her ventilator after six months of absolutely no mm -hmm. ventilators, you know, nothing in the house. Something else random that happened was Birdie never did physical therapy because she always had great gross motor skills. They were always very appropriate. Um, while she was in Omaha, they put the contraptions on your legs that squeeze so that you don't get blood clots. And they rubbed on the back of one of her legs and um, she got a contracture in her ankle and couldn't move her ankle. And could no longer walk so she had to relearn how to walk after this experience too it was 
absolute insanity and just completely unexpected, a complete change to our path. Um, we, like I said, we spent seven weeks there. And then when we came home, we had to, the, they had to bring the ventilators back to our house. Um, we had to do serial casting where every week they stretched her ankle and then gave her a new cast. Um, a very, very crazy time in our lives. Uh, but of course, amazing and a total blessing because there was there was time that first weekend after she went into liver failure that we didn't know if we were going to be bringing her home. Hmm. And I'm so glad you were at that hospital. I mean, I know you had done your research, but you had gotten yourself to the hospital that, I mean, you went there thinking it was a, a cyst removal, but thankfully you were at this hospital that was a transplant specialty hospital, right? So that is a huge blessing, I feel like, but blessing because of the work you did also. Wow. That is traumatic for you as a mama. Oh my goodness. But I feel like I, I feel like you just, you know, just one step in front of the other, but my goodness. Yeah. I will say one strong mom with one strong daughter. That is for sure. Yes. Something that has helped me along the way is I tend to be someone who finds positives and I really think it's just because I love storytelling and so anywhere I can make connections or anything that seems like it could have equaled this to create a bigger picture in a story just always sticks with me um after my daughter had her transplant I reached back out to that mom who I found on the Facebook group and I told her uh, well I first I remember sitting there and thinking I want to thank her, but how do you, what do you say? How do you thank someone for saving your child's life when they, their own, you know, their own child had passed? What happened with their child was same thing as us. So he ended up, except he didn't have, um, the surgery, but he had just gone into liver failure because she was told it's not a big deal. Just wait. It would be a really long time if he were to have cirrhosis, but at five, he ended up going into liver failure. And because he had an emphalocele, the plumbing was a little bit different, which just happens with kids with emphalocele. And so he couldn't just get a liver. He needed a multivisceral transplant. And at that point, it was too late to, because that's a very complicated procedure. And to get on that list is, um, as you can imagine, it was um, because a multivisceral transplant is three or four organs I believe wow I don't want to get that wrong but um it's multiple organs so it would be like if my daughter ended up going to liver failure and then we realized that she actually needed to have a gallbladder as well or you know other organs um in which she have been able to get those but we I decided to reach out to her and thank her And I sat with this message all day, just trying to craft the perfect message. And I sent her the message thanking her. I'll never forget. She responded and said, today is my birthday. And this is the best gift that anyone could have given me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So she was so gracious and so helpful. We don't know who my daughter's donor is. I believe the donor has the option of reaching out after a year, but we haven't heard anything. We don't know who the donor is, but I I always think of her child, Charlie, as, mm-hmm. you know, as our donor, because mm-hmm. if not for them, then right. we wouldn't be here, so. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I feel like as that mom, I mean, such a devastating situation but if anything can come out of it saving another child's life that's just that's just amazing yeah well and I feel like one thing with this podcast that I found is that there's so much moms helping moms out there and I feel like we all need to do that like we all need to especially those of us who have ones with special needs and you know sticking together and helping each other out and this is just the most beautiful story I think I've ever heard of a mom doing that and literally saving another 
another little one's life. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. So Birdie got her liver. You spent your time in Omaha. How and how old is Birdie now? Birdie is four and a half and she will be sure to tell you about that half. Yes, (laughs) as well she should. And then how has she done over these past two and a half years? Because spoiler alert, I've seen her on social media and I know she's doing amazing. So tell us about how she's doing now because she's just, oh, she's just gorgeous. <laughs> she is a remarkable child. I love for people to see photos of her after hearing her journey or even just reading about her on paper because what you see and what you read, it just, it's so different. Um, she is a typical four-year-old in a lot of ways. She loves playing with friends, um, imaginative play, music, reading. She is wise beyond her years. She's funny. She is so excited for kindergarten. Um, We've been preparing. We did an open house recently, and we decided on what school we're going to go to, and um, she just... She is, she, <laughs> I don't know. She's just great. She's so great, you guys. Well, and I feel like you mentioned at the beginning, way back when you were talking about when you were getting her trach, that you had seen online kiddos who had had trachs running around doing these different things. And I feel like that's you guys now, you know, like you are that family that can other moms with this two month old baby who is about to get a trach they can look at Birdie and be like, okay, this is going to be okay. Look at how she's doing now. So it's kind of coming full circle. Yes. And as related to her medical needs. So she had to go back on her ventilator 24 seven for a year following the transplant so that her diaphragm could re-strengthen. And then we were able to start weaning again. And as of four months ago, she hasn't used her ventilator at all. Wow. That's awesome. So that means that we are back on the path to decannulation or getting her trach out in the next, it depends on how this respiratory season goes. Sure. But either this year or if not this year, definitely next year, she'll be able to get decannulated. Yeah, so awesome. Oh my gosh. And then another exciting part of your story is that your family grew again this past year, right? Ooh, yes. That is an exciting part. (laughs) Tell us about that. So, and I know when you and I had originally talked way back um, was when you were pregnant again. And what was that like? being pregnant after and going towards delivery after you had had this traumatic experience with Birdie that I know began around your 14 week scan with her. So what was that like? Yeah. I always bring up that part about finding out at 14 weeks too, just to really illustrate that we never got to have a regular pregnancy. There was, there was two weeks where we got to celebrate with friends and family. And then the rest of it was just devastation and terror and we don't know what's going to happen um talking to I'm sure you've talked to a lot of families in our similar situation there's either those folks who knew before or and then there are those folks that found out after baby was born um this time it so it took us quite a while to decide that this was something that we would do again after Bertie was born and I I remember my husband was wheeling me around and after I had the C-section and I saw another mom being wheeled around and I thought, why would anyone have a child? <laughs> this is so terrible. Um, so I felt that way for a long time. Well, you had such and- a traumatic experience with it. It wasn't your, you know, normal, happy. There was so much to it. Exactly. So my brain was like having baby equals this you know, right. how you feel. It's horrible. Um, so it took a while and Birdie started doing well again. Um, she can walk and run and jump. Um, and she just started doing a lot better and life balanced out. And we decided to try again. And um, so I got pregnant. I found out last October. What I can say about the pregnancy was that it was it was very difficult to feel excited because it's 
what I've learned on my journey is it's all brain training. Your brain knows what it knows. And even if you try and tell it other things, it really has to have that experience for you to be able to have that experience. So a mom that is pregnant and has a child, has had a child and knows that when I'm pregnant, I'm going to have a baby, the baby's going to go home with me, then they have the ability to be excited during the pregnancy in a specific way that I just could not access. And it felt very week by week. I purposely didn't find out the sex of the baby because I have I don't like to get ahead of myself. That's something I've learned on Birdie's journey. And I was worried that if I found out, say, oh, it's a little girl, then I would choose a name and then start thinking about what she's going to be like when she's two and three and 14, and then possibly be totally disappointed um, again, or have something terrible happen and have already attached myself to what I think our life will look like. Because that's something else I've learned along the way is expectation is can really get you um and you know it's hard to not have any expectations or not think that you should have any but also I just try and keep I want things to be more open um have goals and have thoughts but not try and get too specific because I've done that in the past and it feels really bad when you um when your expectations aren't met so but long story short, it was a total typical pregnancy. That's awesome. Um, baby was born. Birdie was in the NICU for t- 202 days. We were in the hospital with him for two days. Yeah. And they, they kicked us out and said, go home and figure it out. And, and no was, health issues with this baby or at all? No, nothing yeah. at all. Just a total typical experience to the point where I said to my husband, I think I'd do this again. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's yeah. like, no, it's too soon. And the baby was just born. It's how we're... how is Birdie enjoying being a big sister? She is loving it. Before he was born, we got her a lot of books about being a big sister. Um, we she's four now, and so it was it was a great for us. It's been a good um, age difference because she very much understood what was going on we had several friends who had babies within the last year and so she saw mom was pregnant they came home with baby um so she was able to figure out what was going on we were able to prep her hey so and so we've built a relationship with one of our day nurses that we met years ago she was with us briefly as a nurse and then she stopped working for the company and now is just like a friend who babysits sometimes and so she came and was with birdie during the um, delivery and we were able to prep Birdie in that way and let her know what was going on and she just absolutely loves him mm-hmm. a little boy named Sonny his name yeah. is Santino and we call him Sonny perfect Birdie and Sonny I love that and then how and I, I know we're I want to be respectful of your time too I know we've been chatting for a while but I have to ask about this trauma-informed yoga that you do now Sure, so sure. I, I can see from your story how you probably got into this, but tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So after transplant, we came back to Kansas City and I was just out of it. I felt so crazy and didn't know what was going on with me. In the NICU, there was this chronic stress that I was experiencing every day, but this acute stress that happened from what went on in Omaha just shook my body in a way that I just can't even explain it. And I am a problem solver. So I was like, I need to figure out what's going on. I did so many things that fall when we got back home. I I said, maybe I should start going back to church. Um, maybe I should, I went to go see a holistic psychiatrist. I was like, do I need medication and, um, or supplements that are going to help me? And she just prescribed me a book to read, which was a good book and it helped a lot. Um, but I was just trying everything. I'm like, what was going to help me to feel better in my body? And I have always practiced yoga for like the past 10, 15 years. Um, And at that time, I decided to return to my yoga practice. And in in doing that, I started to feel 
better. Mm-hmm. I noticed that yoga, meditation, and breath work were doing something for me that, which is what I needed. Now I know that it was nervous system regulation. And uh, what stood out to me was nothing had changed. We still just got done with transplant. My daughter still couldn't walk, had to do blood work several times a week. Um, my husband is, was still working 24 hour shifts and everything was the same, but I felt better. I was like, wow, what is this magic? Uh, and I just really felt that power of yoga. I decided to, how I always think about supporting parents that are in the NICU is what did I need? What helped me? And, um, or supporting parents with kids with medical needs in general, any sort of caregiver. Um, so I decided that I wanted to get certified as a yoga teacher and then specifically trauma-informed care. So I went ahead and did that. And then last year, I started teaching at Children's Mercy for caregivers. Um, and that was It felt so good to be able to give people what I know can really help you in these times, but also to be able to have this idea and then write a proposal, get it to the right people, to see it from start to finish. That is amazing. Yeah, it felt great. I will say it's on pause right now because I ended up taking a job at the hospital in the NICU as parent support. So a bigger picture of if a child is in or if a parent is um, with a child in the hospital, let's just speak more generally, if a caregiver is there at Children's Mercy, then I'm the parent on staff who walks around to the bed spaces, meets parents, connects them to resources throughout the hospital. Um, I run the Facebook page for the NICU group. I also work with a group of former NICU parents who are um, the sounding board for NICU staff. And I intend to get back to teaching yoga at the hospital as part of this role. That is so so cool. I feel like this is just so full circle. I mean, there are so many things like you mentioned Facebook and other parents that helped you. And now you're doing that exact same thing for other parents. And I think you, yeah, you totally should. I can imagine back when I was in the NICU, if there had been a, especially a trauma informed yoga session, like that would have been unbelievable. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, and having that experience, yeah, having that experience of being the parent and patient helps with how you think about the work that you do. So say, how long should the session be? Well, how long do people really want to be away from their baby when they're in the hospital? You know, kind of thinking about it in that term. How far do people want to travel away from the bed space? Uh, Having that experience of being a parent a NICU parent, but now I have that experience of being a PICU parent as well. How do I create a space that people, it brings it to the caregivers and then they can reap those benefits while in these chronically stressful situations is something that I've really um, been proud to be a part of. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Okay. So I have one last question that I ask all of my guests. Um, and it's this, if you could have a whole day to yourself, go anywhere you want, do anything you want, where would you go and what would you do? Sorry to my family, but I am, <laughs> you guys aren't coming. Um, it's that just okay. Me. Yes, I am transported to a Tahitian beach, maybe. Oh. Um, I am lounging, um, sipping a, a Mai Tai or a tequila sunrise, and I'm just napping, reading, napping enjoying the sounds of the waves (laughs) yeah it's a it's a beach holiday for me that sounds amazing that sounds amazing so thank you so much for sharing your story I feel like there is so much to unpack here but I am so happy to hear how well Birdie is doing now and your family has grown to include Sunny and then all these amazing things that you're doing with your life and Again, thank you so much for sharing because I think this can be a place that those parents back when you first started, you know, getting a trach, diagnosed with emphalocele, 
you found other people to turn to, to give you hope and, you know, help you out. And I feel like this is going to do the same for so many other people. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. Hey, everyone. I wanted to jump on here real quick and remind you about my books. So Learning to Breathe is our NICU journey from when my twins were born at 24 weeks and just a pound and a half each. And then the NICU Mama Survival Guide is a book I wrote combining my knowledge as a pelvic health PT who's worked in postpartum care for a really long time with my experience as a NICU mom to help moms recover, even though the little one is in the NICU, to help them recover from their pregnancy and delivery. Both books are available on Amazon. Thanks for joining us today on the Mama Sisterhood Podcast. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any extraordinary motherhood journeys. Also, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second to rate and review. This helps me reach more moms. See you next week.